We are continuing in our series, working through uh, these three Sundays, just the idea of deacons in a church. I want to share a little story, much like I did last Sunday, uh, about a, a deacon and then the influence that a deacon can have in the life of a church. And this one particular situation, a church was forced to ask an associate pastor to resign after a, a period of, of just some prolonged relational disagreement and uh, this turmoil there, some tension that comes with that. And that decision, as you can imagine, greatly hurt a, a small segment of the church. There's uh, typically when something like that happens, and it's unfortunate, but there are people who are really, really close to uh, whoever's involved in that. And so that happened in this particular church. And so about 30 members were really uh, hurt over this decision. They couldn't understand why the church couldn't uh, just work it out between the two parties. And and so because of that tension, because of the, the mistrust there or the distrust there, the elders began to realize that they just can't pastor these people anymore. And so there was a great divide amongst the two parties. They needed a mediator to stand in the gap between of them. One of the deacons in the church, his name was Jeff, he stepped up to the plate and became that mediator. He rose to the occasion, if you will. Uh, he, he delegated or, or, or navigated this very delicate situation and began to bring the two parties together and to talk uh, with them and, and to them about it. And he absorbed the shock of what was becoming a strong fracture within the congregation. And amazingly, the church's relationship with the associate pastor got better. It got in, it improved. He didn't stay on staff, but he stayed in the church, in fact, for a number of months until he found another ministry assignment elsewhere. And also along with that, not a single member that was there uh, really wavering, wondering if they were going to have to leave the church, they decided to stay. And so the healing and the restoration that took place there was only possible because of Jeff's wisdom and his tenacity to pursue peace. Most likely without his help, the mediation or mediating between the associate pastor and the church, most likely what would have happened would have been a church split. It would have been people leaving the church. It would have been the associate pastor being hurt further and taking that hurt onto the next ministry site. But the elders and the members trust in Deacon Jeff enabled him to be a problem solver. It was his servant leadership that brought about the beauty of biblical reconciliation. That's what deacons, in large part, are there to do, to absorb shock, to bring solutions to problems. And this morning, as we continue with third and final message in this series on the role of deacon, the office of deacon, we're going to continue to look at this and looking at it from the standpoint of what are the requirements for deacons? Who is a, a good candidate for a deacon in a church? You know, I mentioned last, uh, last week and the week before that that it's likely uh, your perspective of deacons is in large part uh, built around your experience. The churches you've been a part of in the past and how they approach deacons. I, I've, tell, I've told our staff and our elders and our deacons a lot in recent days that I grew up in a church that didn't have deacons. Uh, very few ch Baptist churches you'll find that don't have deacons, but there was such strife between the staff and the pastor and the deacons for, for decades that uh, long before I was even alive, the pastor back in the 70s uh, just decided, and I don't know how he did it, but he decided and got the church to go along with it, and they just disbanded and went away with deacons. And so everything deacon ministry was supposed to be doing is now uh, absorbed into small group ministry and staff ministry and, and all of that. And so I grew up with very little understanding of the role of deacon because I 
just didn't happen in our church. And so we approach this concept largely by our experience, but we want to be, as individual believers, as a church, a people who build our lives, build our church upon the Word of God. And so we're looking at what does the Bible say about deacons, and it doesn't say a whole lot. So we're going to look at some key passages over these three Sundays, and that's what we've been doing, that speak specifically to this role, this office in the life of the church. And one of the reasons for this is because we're looking to restructure and redeploy the deacon ministry here at Red Lane Baptist. And so, in fact, even this evening, we're going to have our special members meeting. We're going to roll that out for you in its entirety and, and explain what that's going to look like, the restructuring, how it's going to be redeployed, and, and just have an opportunity for you to ask questions and, and talk through this restructuring. And then we'll come back in August at the end of the month at our quarterly members meeting, and you'll have an opportunity as a church to vote, uh, a vote have a vote of affirmation whether or not to move in this direction or uh, to do something Different, And so for that reason, we are speaking these three Sundays on the roles, responsibilities, and requirements of these, what we're calling, leading servants. You know, we have laid out the last two Sundays that when we look in the New Testament, it, lay, it, it identifies for us two offices. You've got the office of what the New Testament would call the elder or the overseer or the pastors. And so those three terms are synonymously used in the New Testament to speak of what we would refer to as elders, pastors in the church who are shepherding the flock. And then the other office would be that of the deacon, the, the, the leading servant who comes alongside the, de- the elders and uh, executes the vision and the ministry of the church. And so those are the two offices described and prescribed in the New Testament, and we refer to them here as elders and deacons. So as we try to understand how the leaders within the structure operate together, we've used a word picture over the last two Sundays, and I want to reiterate that. When we think about how do elders and deacons, and then we also, for our church, have a staff team, how do those three play together? How do they work together and bring life and health to the life of the church? And so we've kind of put it out there this way. What elders do is they cast the vision for the journey. They, they say, this is where we're headed as a church. This is our destination point. And for us, our staff team, our staff pastors come alongside that and they drive the bus. They're getting on the bus. They're taking the church with them on the bus. And they're the ones driving the bus to the destination laid out by our elders. And then the deacons in their role in ministry in the church, they're the ones making sure that there's fuel in the tank to make it from destination point A to destination point B. So they work together to live out, flesh out, and execute the vision and the direction of the elders. So today we're building upon the roles and responsibilities of these leading servants that we've looked at the last two Sundays in Acts chapter 6. And today we're going to look at the requirements here that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you got your place there, Look with me in verse 8 and reading through verse 13. Paul says this, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their, their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. The first Timothy, uh, along with second Timothy and also the uh, epistle to Titus, are three letters that we would call pastoral epistles. Uh, All three letters are written by the Apostle Paul. All three letters are written to pastors of local churches. And so Paul in 1 and 2 Timothy is writing to to Timothy, writing to the the, the man who is pastoring the church there in the city of Ephesus. He writes to Titus who's pastoring the church in another city. And he's writing to give them instructions about their pastoral duties and how to structure the local church. So basically what we see here is their responsibilities were twofold. To defend sound doctrine and to defend sound discipline, or we may say maintain sound discipline. A lapse in these two main areas is how a church most often gets in trouble. It's how they get off the rails and run into destruction. And unfortunately, we could look through history and see that it's replete with all sorts of examples where churches got outside of uh, sound doctrine and outside of sound discipline and ran aground. Timothy, as I just said, was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, uh, clarifies that he seems to be the guy who appointed this young man as the pastor of the church there, a church that he helped plant. And so as the pastor in Ephesus, Timothy was faced with a giant challenge. Uh, in the mid-60s A.D., the city of Ephesus was large. It was a very diverse city. It was a very affluent city. It was a very religiously complex city. Uh, It had all kinds of commercial businesses, and and it was very similar to what we would see in America today in a major metropolitan type of city, a New York or a Los Angeles, a Chicago. There in Ephesus, we also know from history that it was the site of the temple Artemis, or in Roman mythology, Diana. She was the patroness of sexual instinct. And so there was a whole cult that was built around the worship of Artemis, the worship of Diana, and this cult that followed and worshipped this this goddess was very influential within the imperial city. And so as, as Timothy is pastoring this church in Ephesus, they are winning pagans, they are winning uh, men and women and teenagers to faith in Jesus who are coming out of this lifestyle, out of this cultic practice, out of this worship and uh, of gross sexual immorality surrounded around Artemis. And so it affected every aspect of this city, the culture of this city. Um, it also engulfed a number of other cult practices such as magic and sorcery and soothsaying. And so I can think, I think it's easy we can say that as Timothy is seeking to pastor in this city, he is not pastoring a church in a city that's built on Judeo-Christian values, much like our culture here in America, even though that's wavering and crumbling and falling apart today. I think we can see that. But he's pastoring in a church that knows nothing of the gospel. It only knows pagan practices. And so he's faced with an amazing challenge to disciple young believers, to structure the church in such a way that it brings honor and glory to Jesus and and helps believers continue to put to death sin in their lives. And so that's the culture that he's facing. There's also within the church its own issues. The church was dealing with the cancer of false teaching. Paul in this letter uh, mentions two particular men, Hymenius and Alexander. Uh, These two individuals had been had been excommunicated for rejecting the faith and a good conscience. They'd walked away from the gospel. 
Uh, two of these leaders perhaps were even, or these two leaders were perhaps even elders in the life of the church. And so Paul instructs that they be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme God. Paul doesn't clearly spell out exactly what they were teaching, but he does give us clues as we read through the letter of what was taking place. In chapter 1, verse 3, we see that they were straying in their doctrine, straying away from sound biblical teaching. In verse 4 of that first chapter, they, we see they were preoccupied with myths and genealogies and speculations. Their focus was not on the right thing, it was on other things. They misused the law in verse 7. They were apparently immoral there in verses 19 and 20. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 2, we see that their consciences were seared. They had lived in sin for so long, they no longer felt the sting of the Holy Spirit as he pricked and, and, and revealed sin in their life. They just couldn't sense it because they had become dull to the movement of God. Chapter 4, verse 3, we also see they were forbidding marriage and certain foods, and so they put a priority on, on uh, uh, asceticism over spiritual, true spiritual devotion to the Lord. They said, no, we got to deny certain things in our lives so that we can be more acceptable to God. So these are doctrines that were influencing the church. Chapter 6, verse 4, we see that they craved controversy and quarrels. And so rather than being leaders and believers in the church who were uh, uh, promoting peace, they were promoting disunity and fights even. There in verse 5, they were using godliness for material gain. They were trying to, to make a dime on uh, spiritual matters. And so... I think we can say that the church was not merely dealing here with preferences over the style of music. They were contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, in Ephesus, uh, Timothy was literally leading a church where the gospel message was at stake. So as a way to encourage and build up this young pastor in the church, Paul writes this letter. And in it, he struck, instructs Timothy in sound doctrine. He instructs him in, in what sound discipline in the life of a believer in church ought to look like. And part of that discipline involved how the church leadership should be structured, how the church should operate, and who is qualified to hold those offices. And so in the first part of chapter 3, he lays out the qualifications in the first seven verses for elders. In verses 8 through 13 that we just read, he lays out the qualifications or the requirements for that of deacon. Now, over the last two Sundays, we've talked about these leading servants, and we've talked about their role. What is the role of a deacon in the life of the church? We've said two things. They're shock absorbers who absorb the shock of, of tension and, and anything that's in the life of the church that's, that's leading to a fraction or, or, or breaking a part of, uh, of unity there. They absorb that rather than reverberate it. So they're going to they're gonna talk with people and, and understand the issues. They're going to seek to meet the needs that are creating the fractions there, all in an attempt to absorb the shock rather than allow it to continue to spread and to bring further destruction. And then along with that, as they're absorbing the shock, they're problem solvers. How do you absorb the shock? You try to fix the issue that's creating the fracture. And so they're going to absorb that. They're going to bring a solution to it. That's what we see in Acts chapter 6 in the 7 that the apostles told the church to select. And from that, we laid out three responsibilities of deacons coming from Acts 6 as well. And, and so the first thing we identified last Sunday is that they spot and satisfy tangible needs. And so deacons in the life of the church have been tasked with a certain uh, job. And so they're constantly looking, all right, where's the need and how can I satisfy it? That's what they're doing. 
And in doing so, the second responsibility is they are protecting and promoting church unity. And then thirdly, they serve and support the ministry of the elders. They help by coming alongside the elders of the church, taking burdens off their shoulders so they can focus on what their primary task is and the deacons take care of the other things. And when all those are working together, when elders and deacons are functioning in the biblical way that's laid out, verse 7 in Acts chapter 6 tells us this, the word of God multiplies and the gospel advances. You want to know why a whole lot of churches in our denomination today are doing nothing? It's because they are fighting and there's such turmoil within them that their focus is not on meeting needs, caring for people. It's not on, I want to be a blessing to someone else. It's always, no, I want someone to be a blessing to me. And so the Word of God begins to stagnate. The gospel begins to stagnate. That's not what was taking place in Acts chapter 6. This is a major moment in church history. We could be reading today a whole different story. If, if what happened in Acts chapter 6, if it had never taken place and the church had not selected those seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of a, a heart that desires to, to minister and meet people's needs and, and, and do everything they can to bring unity, then what we could be reading back into the text today or reading from the text today would be something completely different. It would be a disaster. But instead, what we read is a church conflict handled well. How did they do that? Well, they had the right men, the right people on the team to make it happen. So as important as it is for the church to be structured properly, it is equally essential for the church to select the right people. And for this reason, Paul here lays out the requirements necessary to hold the office of deacon. And and so what are they? Let's look at them, four categories uh, this morning. First of all, we see deacons are dignified. If you want to know what is required of a deacon, it is a dignified person. Look there in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They're dignified. Like the elders, Paul here is stressing character for those who desire to be deacons. When we look at a, a requirement for deacon, when we look at what Paul's writing to Timothy, he doesn't tell Timothy, find a guy who has the right tools in the toolbox. Find the guy who has a business degree. Find a guy who can understand how to calculate numbers. Find a guy who knows how to talk to people from a, with a counseling degree. No, he says, look at individuals who are dignified, who are worthy of respect, is another translation. So the list here in verses 8 through 13 is very similar to the list that we see in the first seven verses as it's speaking to who is qualified for eldership. Basically, the only difference is the ability to teach and to preach. It's not a qualification for deacons, but it is for elders. And so deacons are quite simply intended to exemplify the character of Christ. They are to be dignified, worthy of respect. Similar to the elders, they are to display an exemplary degree of Christ's likeness. Their lives are to be free from conspicuous sin. You see, when we look out and, and we're selecting the, the right people to serve as deacons in the life of our church, we're looking for Christ-likeness. We're looking for those whose lives model the life of Jesus in them. We can see it being pressed out from the inside out. It's apparent. Deacon is to be respectable, righteous, and holy. This characteristic speaks of humility. It speaks of ongoing repentance in one's life. And it's a model for others to follow. 
Paul further clarifies what dignity looks like in, in the deacon's life. In verse 8, he, he does talk about the fact that they're not double-tongued. Any Western watchers? I know that if you're under 40, you're probably not going to raise your hand. I've loved Westerns my entire life. I think I'm an old guy in a younger guy's body. I really do. I mean, I grew up watching Westerns with my grandpa, my dad. Uh, John Wayne is my hero. Audie Murphy is my favorite Western actor. I just love that guy. He's the most decorated soldier in American history. Incredible story behind him. But in, in Westerns, especially the Westerns that, that deal with sort of the cowboy Indian thing, uh, many times you'll hear in a Western an Indian speak of a white person that speaks with a forked tongue. You ever heard that phrase before? What does it mean to speak with a forked tongue? It means they lie. They don't speak straightly. That's the idea here that Paul is laying out. A deacon, a dignified deacon is one who speaks the truth and he speaks the same thing to all parties. In other words, the, the, that person is not going to be agreeing with what's said with this group of people. And then when he gets over or, or, or that person gets over with another group of people, he changes course and speaks the other way. No, they're not double-tongued. They speak the truth. They say the same thing. They also are not addicted to much wine in there in verse 8. Paul here warned against the loss of self-control with the use of alcohol. You see, drunkenness destroys life. It sucks people into further sin. The Bible does not require deacons to abstain from alcohol, but it does say that they must possess the capacity for self-denial. Self-denial, self-control is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. They're also not to be greedy for dishonest gain, according to verse 8. Deacons then are not to be consumed with the pursuit of money and material possessions. It doesn't say that deacons have to be poor. It doesn't say that deacons have to be living off welfare. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says that their focus in life should not be on making money. That shouldn't be. Why? Because when they're so focused on making money, their attention and their, their energies are not going to be given to the care of the congregation. The love of money also opens up the door for corruption. It lays up, open the door for deception. It can lead to deacons trying to manipulate things in the church to, to use monies for their pet projects or pet ministries. They're also not to be slanders, according to verse 11. Deacons are not to participate in or perpetuate gossip within the church. It goes back to that fork and tongue thing. See, they're shock absorbers. They're not reverberators. So they're not going to hear something then pass it along even as a prayer request. They should speak well of others, give people the benefit of the doubt. Verse 11, we also see they're, not, they're sober-minded. Paul's profile for elders calls for them to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, to be temperate and disciplined. This is the same of deacons. Self-control, as I said earlier, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a mark of the Christian life. In other words, a Spirit-filled believer is a self-controlled believer. They're faithful in all things, verse 11. The life of a deacon should be above reproach. This person is not sinless, but exemplifies Christ-like character in every facet of life. There's no grounds for accusation. A person in the church begins to consider a name that's been laid out there for nomination. There should never be the thought in their head of like, I saw them do something that just doesn't sell well with me. No, their life is above reproach. Now, are they going to make mistakes from time to time? Yeah, but above a reproach. There, there's a level of, of Christ-likeness in their lives that's setting them apart from others. They fulfill their commitments is another aspect of that. So they're dignified. Secondly, deacons hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
Reading through the task given to the seven in Acts chapter six might lead, you know, if we were to go back and look at that passage, might lead us to understand deacon ministry is that which is only practical or physical in nature. But if you look here at verse nine, he says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So with that understanding, doctrine would, would seem to be irrelevant for deacons, but that's not what verse 9 is saying. What we see in this verse is that deacon ministry involves doctrine. It involves the teaching, the, the speaking, the understanding of the Word of God. So the primary responsibility of teaching doesn't fall on their shoulders, but that doesn't mean they don't know their Bibles. Every Christian ought to know their Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not a good Christian. Let me just be nice this morning and, and just help you on this summer Sunday. You're not a good Christian if you're not reading your Bible. It'd be like saying, I, I love my wife, but I just don't ever talk to her. I, I love my children, but I can't stand being around them. You're a bad, lousy husband, and you're a terrible parent if that's the case. <laughs> Read your Bible. So deacons know the Word of God. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They need to understand the Word of God, but not just understand it, live it out in their life. The term mystery here does not refer to some sort of mystery genre. It's not some sort of literary genre here that we're talking about. It's talking about the divine truth that was once hidden, but has now been revealed through Jesus Christ. He's referring to the content of the gospel and Christian doctrine. So what we see here and understand here is deacons should know the Word of God. They should know the Word of God. They should know the Word of God and what it necessitates for the life of a believer. There ought to be a hunger and desire to read the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to learn the things of God. They should hold the Word of God as well. Not just know it, but hold it. Whatever truth a deacon grasps with the mind must be clung to the heart. So deacons must not be embarrassed by the Word of God when it clashes with cultural beliefs. I mean, it's getting harder and harder as a follower of Jesus today to stand up and say, that's wrong to the culture. But if we're going to be Bible-believing believers, genuinely converted believers who, who, who profess and live out our gospel faith, then we can't ever shrink back when the Word of God clashes with culture. And so no one who, who does that should ever be qualified or considered for the office of deacon because we have to know the Word of God and hold the Word of God and then also live the Word. It's not enough to know what's true. Deacons' clear conscience leads them to live it out. This refers back to the previous qualifications of eldership. So a deacon with a clear conscience will be a person of moral integrity and courage. The one who really believes the word is the one who lives it out. There's a third category we see here, and they're tested and proven. You know... Um, I love to be around all Christians. I mean, I love to be around those who've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Uh, I love. I, I love to see what the Lord has done in their lives and how the Lord continues to work in their lives. But there's nothing like being around a baby Christian, a, a, an infant in Christ, if you will. You know, they just come to know Jesus maybe a few days ago, a few weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago, and, and there's this incredible excitement. I don't know why it wanes in our life after a while. I think we get around a bunch of other Christians who aren't really walking with Jesus, and it kind of pours water on the fire some. But when you 
come in contact with someone who's just recently come to know Jesus. There is a passion there. There's an excitement there. I mean, they're always wanting to talk about the gospel. They're always wanting to tell their testimony. They're always wanting to share how they once lived and now how Jesus has changed that. There's just something exciting about being around young baby Christians in the faith. But young baby Christians in the faith, what Paul is going to tell us here in this passage, should never be considered candidates for the office of deacon. Look what he says here in verse 10. Let them also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see, we must not mistake enthusiasm in new believers for passion and spiritual maturity. Or we shouldn't mistake enthusiasm and passion for spiritual maturity. Paul is warning against appointing a new believer to this position, either an elder or deacon, because they've not first been tested and proven. The danger of doing so is that the new believer may become a victim of conceit. They may think, man, I'm a new follower of Jesus, and and look at the pedestal I've been put on. Man, I'm awesome. I'm wonderful. And that puts them in a place of danger, right? The devil loves when we get puffed up. The devil loves when we become proud. The devil loves when we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It's in that moment that we are very vulnerable. And so Paul is saying here, let the ones who hold this office be tested, be proven, show that they're a follower of Jesus, show that they're genuine in their faith, show that they can stand the test of time when the kitchen begins to get hot, that they're not going to walk out. See, according to verse 10, deacons should have a track record of faithful living. They should have walked through the valleys of life and come out faithful on the other side. A few years ago, I just had this thought, um, and I can't think of the rapper's name. Help me out here, somebody. Married to a Kardashian, um, Kanye West. Yeah, so a few years ago, Kanye West, and he may genuinely be saved. I'm I'm not going there. But Kanye West... Uh, word came out. He made a profession of Christ for Christ. He's a follower of Jesus, and and all of a sudden he's being elevated to these positions of holding concerts and preaching the gospel and doing all of these things. Uh, I mean, very public, open things. And and you look at it from one perspective, you think, wow, that's awesome. Look at the influence and a cultural. Uh, particular niche that the rest of us don't have. God's going to use him or could use him in a major way. Also, you could look at his idea. He's not been tested and proven. He's not shown that he will stick by the gospel, stick by Christ when it's hard, when it's difficult. And I don't know where he's at today. I just know it seems to have lost its luster. Let's just say it that way, right? So Paul's telling Timothy here, Look for candidates for the office of deacon who've been tested and proven faithful. This is the person who's not going to be so likely to quit. It's the person who's not going to try to take ministerial shortcuts. There's a fourth category, faithful family life. Paul's final requirement is that deacon's godliness begin with the closest of relationships. So Paul prioritizes fidelity in marriage. He speaks of there in verse 12, let Uh, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so he prioritizes this fidelity, speaking to male deacons here at this point in the verse, and he's saying that let this type of individual be a one-woman kind of man. Let him be faithful to his wife. He must selflessly serve her. You see, the home is the ultimate training ground for serving the members of the church. We ought to look, that, look for that in all of our leadership. 
I mean, we ought to look for small group leaders who are going to love their spouses, who are going to love their children, who are going to tend to their needs, who are going to make sure that they're taken care of and equipped and, and nurtured in both spiritual things and physical things. Verse 12 here makes it clear. <clears throat> makes it clear that there's no such thing as a good deacon who's a lousy husband or a father. Faithful family life. As we look at verse 13, Paul has one last thing to say about deacons in this particular passage. Here he emphasizes two gifts of faithful deacon ministry. I think Paul fully understood the pressure that comes on people in ministry. I think he, I know he did, because he was shipwrecked and he was uh, often hungry. He was uh, without clothes at times. He was constantly being chased around. He was constantly just facing the fires of ministry. He understood what that was like, the pressure cooker that it was. And so he is going to sum all this up by giving some encouragement to those who would take this responsibility because much of deacon ministry is a thankless ministry. It's behind the scenes. It's not on the platform. You're not going to see the deacons in our church largely standing here on the platform like I am. There's pros and cons to those things, right? Elders may be uh, in the limelight a whole lot more. I may be in the limelight much more and probably in more than anyone else in our church. But I take the most bullets, right? I take the most pressure. Our, our elders there. And so there's, a, there's a, a kind of a give and take in all of this. But both offices have their own sets of pressures and difficulties and hardships. But at the same time, they also have their blessings and gifts. Paul gives out two gifts here in verse 13. First of all, we get this idea of respect. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves. This is a horizontal gift. It's the church respecting them for their ministry. It's the church honoring them as godly servants and examples. So they're holding them up saying, man, thank you for serving. Thank you for being a model for our lives. Thank you for working in the life of our church to absorb the shock, to bring solutions to problems so that we can be a better people of God. We hold you in honor. We give you respect. We ought to respect those who serve in such a way right here at Red Lane. There's a second gift, and he talks about boldness. He goes on to say, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We might say that this is a vertical gift coming down from the Lord. So the deacon who serves well grows in confidence. This happens because the deacon has witnessed the gospel transformation in lives. The deacon has been there and witnessed and been a part of marriages being salvaged. He's been there and she's been there and, and saw strangers meeting the needs of other people. I mean, people who don't really know each other coming together for a common need and to seek to meet it. The deacon has seen the unity of people in love. And as a result, a deacon becomes more confident that the Lord can and will move in the most precarious of situations. Let's go back to that opening story that I began with. Is that not what happened in that particular church? you got a church that's fracturing. you got a situation on the staff team where there's been a prolonged period of tension, and it's got to a point now where a change needs to happen. Churches of probably every church has been there. I, I've had those in my own ministry, whether it's been uh, a staff member underneath me or I've served on a staff team where that's taking place, and it happens. And so I understand what that's like and the tensions there. And so that's taking place. And, and this church is really at a, at, a, at a crisis moment, whether or not they're going to break apart. 
And Deacon Jeff steps up in this situation. Situation where there was hurt, a situation where there was distrust on both sides. And Jeff was able, because he had served the Lord and the church well for years, was able to both believe God for the healing and possess the respect necessary for both parties to say, Jeff, lead us through this. Help us come together. Help us heal biblically so that there's restoration. You see, deacons are God's gift to the church. They're his beautiful blessing of shock absorbers and problem solvers. And that the fact that they're so vital to a church's health means that not just anyone can hold the office. They must be dignified. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be tested and proven, and they must demonstrate a faithful family life. As we've ended the last two Sundays, when we talk about deacon work, diaconal work, it is an office and it is a ministry for a select few. But when it comes to serving our brothers and sisters, that is not just the work of a select few. It's the work of all of us. So we can learn something from the requirements and, and, and responsibilities and even the roles of deacons in the life of church and begin to say, as a father of Jesus, I don't need an office to serve. I don't need an office to, to be selfless. I don't need an office to love my brother and sister. I don't need an office or a title. I don't need a, a budget line item to just live out the faith amongst the brethren. In fact, we don't select elders and deacons from people who are not first living that out without a title across their name. And so this morning, as we look at this, we ought to be looking at our own hearts. Lord, how do I live my life? Are these characteristics of me? Am I dignified? Do I speak with a forked tongue? Do I uh, kind of hold loosely the, the gospel? Do I um, kind of jump into things? Do I not fulfill my obligations? I mean, am I a trustworthy person? We need to be asking ourselves these questions. Am I using my gift? Maybe some uh, here this morning, maybe watching us online, or, uh, you don't, I, I, I mean this in the nicest way. I know some of you don't know me at all. And I'm going to say this, and you think, that dude is just mean. I don't mean this mean at all. Some of you aren't doing anything, right? You just come, you sit, you take a spot, and we're exceptionally glad you're here. But if you're a member of our church, even if you're an attender and you're thinking about joining here, I do not believe you can find anywhere in the Bible where God tells his people to go and do nothing. He says, get in and get involved. You're a member of the body of Christ. Paul uses this image of a human body as an illustration of the life of the church. And so think about your own body. Every part of it works together to help the other parts of the body. When I got an itch, and I got one on the back of my neck right now, who scratches that itch? My family won't do it. I try to get them all the time. And then they do that. It's like, I mean, it's like, come on, grow some nails. Go to the salon and get some nails and come back and scratch my back. That's what I'm thinking. Who scratches my neck? It's these little fingers right here, if I can reach it. Right? The body takes care of the body. We need to be the body of Christ who serves one another, cares for one another. And so how are you using your giftedness? How are you using the passions that God has bred into your life to further the gospel and bless the local church? I would encourage you this morning that if you're not serving in an area, begin to ask some questions. Pastor, Pastor Ricky, Pastor Nate, Jennifer, uh, go to one of our elders, go to your small group, find someone who's in leadership in our church and say, pull me to work. 
let me do something. My daughter, our kids just got back from student camp, and so Friday picked her up. We were on our way back home, and I was asking her some questions, and I was trying to get more out of her than good, which is what most kids say about stuff, right? You probably know that. How was school? Good. How was church? Good. What'd you learn? Nothing. <laughs> Wonderful. Glad we invested all this time and money. Good and good investment. So I was kind of pulling this out, and she was talking a little bit, and I was, I was encouraged by that. And so she began to tell me that one of the breakouts that she was assigned to was the spiritual gifts type of thing. And so she kind of walked through what her top three or four spiritual gift directions would be. And so that's, that's cool. And I told her, I was like, that ain't a foolproof thing, but here's what you do. This is how you know what your spiritual gift is. Go and do something, right? Just go and do something. Figure out if that's a passion. Figure out if that's a giftedness. And if it's not, go find something else. The, the gifts inventory are good. We give that to, to folks who are seeking membership here. When we go through our connection class, you'll get a little pamphlet that kind of helps you think through what your spiritual giftedness is. But ultimately, if you want to know what it is, go begin to serve, and you'll begin to figure it out. I never thought I would be a preacher when I started serving in the local church 25-plus years ago. But God, through all of that, began to work some stuff out, and here I am today. You're welcome. So what's the Lord saying to you this morning? Here's what he may be saying to some of us. We're talking about spiritual gifts. We're talking about serving in place. But man, the really need of my heart, I need a relationship with Jesus. I began to pray this week a little bit more specifically uh, uh, that God would, would draw people to faith in Jesus. I'm not so foolish to think that everyone who attends here and watches this online is a follower of Jesus. I believe there are several people in our church every Sunday morning sitting in our worship service who the greatest need in their life is not uh, to be blessed with a message or, or, or anything like that that's, you know, for more common believers. But the greatest need in their life is to have a relationship with Jesus. They need to be forgiven of their sins. Maybe that's you this morning. I would encourage you. I want you to walk the aisle. I, I, man, that's my prayer every Sunday morning. Lord, draw people to faith in Jesus and let them publicly make that announcement to the church. Whatever way you want to make that announcement this morning, I pray you would do it. But if that's the greatest thing in your life, God tells us he loves us. The Bible tells us in a roundabout way that he designed us for himself and he has a purpose for our life. The Bible tells us that that purpose has been marred. It's been broken by sin. We've rebelled and rejected him. And so we are broken people. We try to fix ourselves all the time but we're broken. In fact, all we do is make ourselves more broken when we try to fix the holes in our life. But the Bible gives us good news. And that good news is Jesus Christ. God the Son came to this world, died in your place, took your sins upon himself so that if you would look to him and believe on him by faith, your sins could be forgiven. The brokenness in your life could be put back together. And then now you're on a path to recover and to pursue all that God has purpose for your life. That's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. I hope that's true of you. If it's not, may it become true of you today. So if you need Jesus, I want to encourage you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need a place to serve. Man, you come as well and just make that, that known to, to me and some of our folks here. And, and we'll begin to have that conversation. Maybe you want to join our church. We'll begin to have that process. we got a connections class starting here in just a couple of weeks, and that's part of membership. We'll have that conversation.